0: Welcome to the latest Red Star Bulletin, covering all the news of the moment from the Russia-Ukraine war, or more accurately, the Russia-NATO war, the latter of whom is merely using Ukraine as essentially a sock puppet. Starting off, we'll be looking at the latest briefings from the various front lines, and then I'll be looking at some of the stories of the day, and I'll be going through... The briefing given by Lieutenant General Igor Kirillov of the Russian Ministry of Defense. He's chief of the Russian Nuclear, Chemical and Biological Forces. And he gave a briefing today uh, covering the possibility that the Russians have been talking about all day of Ukraine obtaining or creating and using what's known as a dirty bomb or improvised uh, nuclear device and detonating this Possibly in the Mikolayiv area, as so I'll be talking about that and the various different uh, diplomatic comings and goings that have been uh, present throughout the day regarding that story, and then I'll be looking in related news to a Wall Street Journal article by Joseph Sternberg covering the fall of Liz Truss, which is tangentially related, of course, to the Ukraine war. And then going on to look at some of the other economic fallout, such as the potential sanctions covering the Russian aluminium uh, exports industry, and the, of course, forthcoming Eurozone recession and the political delusions about it in Britain. But to start off with, we're going to be looking at the uh, f- stories from the front line. Again, there's our constant activity across the, uh, the all of the front lines in uh, Donetsk, Lugansk, uh, Zaporozhye and Kherson, but uh, most of the action at the moment um, is focused around, of course, continues to be Bakhmut on the Russian offensive there and a potential offensive in Kherson. Now, in terms of Kherson, what's been happening is it's clearly that in Kherson city, the Russian forces there are digging in and are preparing to hold the city. They are Not only doing a sweep of the city, it seems, the Russian security forces, that is, for potential Ukrainian stay behind agents, sabotage groups, arresting people who are accused of uh, being such groups or being active in such groups. The Russian army is also putting putting out the word for residents of Kherson who are of military age to form a territorial defense group, so essentially a um, militia Uh, for the Kherson region, so it doesn't look as if there is any move by the Russians to actually evacuate the area. They've moved the civilians out in order to give the military free reign in the city, essentially. And given that they're forming territorial defense units, it looks as if they are digging in in the hope that um, by doing so they can meet the Ukrainians with a hell of a lot of force if the Ukrainians do make a serious move towards Kherson city. There is, of course, a lot of talk about what's actually going on down there, and it's partially related to these uh, dirty bomb allegations, and I'll come to those later. But it doesn't look like the Russians are planning on leaving Kherson City anytime soon, Um, certainly not if the reports coming out of there are to be believed. And the large amount of Russian troops that are in the region indicate that they intend to hold on down there, even if the Ukrainians do launch the much talked about. Next offensive elsewhere on the front line there were unsuccessful Ukrainian attacks in the kupiansk direction and at Krasny Liman where uh, two mechanized companies of the armed forces of Ukraine attempted to break the Russian lines uh, in the border area of the Lukansk People's Republic near Cherno- Chervano Popovka and the Russians report that the armed forces of Ukraine were driven back by air and artillery attacks. Uh, there are other pieces of activity in uh, Sladkoy and Vladimirovka, both in the Donetsk People's Republic, where an attack in there was repulsed by Russian artillery strikes, and in the Kryvyi area, ironically where Zelensky himself comes from, uh, a Ukrainian battalion tactical group apparently attempted to assault um, a town near uh, Brosinskoy, uh, the town of Brzezinskoy, I should say, so to say, And this was repulsed with, again, these are Russian claims, so not verified from the Ukrainian side. But the Russians are reporting at least 80 dead from the Ukrainian side, including um, 11 combat vehicles destroyed. And interestingly enough, 15 domestic uh, civilian cars destroyed. And this is something which is starting to creep in in a lot of the Russian reports and footage that I've seen shot by Russian soldiers from the front line that the Ukrainians are starting to move troops around in civilian cars. Now, this could be to disguise them from Russian air air surveillance drones and surveillance aircraft to make it look as if these are civilian cars going around. But the fact that the Russians are claiming to have destroyed a significant number of civilian cars in what was an assault by Ukrainian forces says or suggests to me that they're running low on armored vehicles at the moment. Because why on earth would you use unarmored civilian cars in a, what was supposed to be an armored assault on a town it doesn't make any sense unless of course you're trying to transport men um, in these cars because you've run out of yeah, the armored personnel carriers which you would usually use for this so that's an interesting indication that the uh, western supply lines for Ukraine are running dry and that Ukraine's equipment is getting blown up so quickly that they're having to resort to using civilian vehicles there's also Confirmed reports that the Ukrainian armed forces are using pickup trucks, uh, ISIS style, with um, heavy machine guns uh, um, welded onto the back of them, onto the flatbeds. And that they're also using them for troop transport, which I suppose if it works, it works. But it's hardly the kind of thing that an army that's winning the the war um, or winning the war in uh, in terms of having a steady supply line would be resorting to uh, the tactics of a lightly armed uh, terrorist organization. So interesting couple of details there that gives some sort of clue that the Ukrainian supply line from the West is not doing particularly well and can't keep up with the level of destruction the Russians are inflicting on Ukrainian forces. And also another story that came out, and this was confirmed by the military commission in Kiev, that the Ukrainians are doing another wave of mobilization of all men up to the age of 60. And this is going to be another one of those where they mobilise people, put them through a rapid training programme and then throw them into the front line. And the training programmes that have, uh, the uh, Ukrainian forces are going through in Poland and in Britain are reportedly only um, a few weeks long, two to three weeks long, if you believe the reports that are coming out. Again, unconfirmed so far, but the fact that the uh, the Ministry of Defence in Britain is confer- is Claiming that they were turning around a training course of uh, 10,000 Ukrainians uh, at a time, it says that they're basically giving them the basics that they need: uh, weapon handling, basic um, ha- basic instruction as to how to conduct certain military manoeuvres, how to act as a unit, maybe those thi- those type of things. This is what the MOD themselves in Britain were claiming that they would do; it, they were giving the Ukrainians in terms of training, then throwing them into the uh, into the field. Which is a comparison to the slower process that the Russians are using to bring up to speed the three hundred thousand at least um, mobilised men that they are taking a slightly longer amount of time to train up to standard. People who've already been through military uh, training quite recently, so they're going to get Ukrainians are desperate just to get somebody, anybody into the breach to fill a hole. Basically, the Russians can afford to take their time. Now, this leads me on to the next part of the briefing today, which is concerning the statements made by both the uh, Russian Minister of Defense, General Sergei Shoigu, and also statements from the Russian Foreign Ministry regarding the possibility of the Ukrainian government or forces within it uh, using, both creating and using, what's known as a dirty bomb in Ukraine, and the reports coming out of various Russian sources say that this would be a provocation that would be planned to be carried out somewhere in the region of Mykolaiv or Kherson. And this is a rather interesting, potentially deadly story, so I'm going to spend quite a bit of time in this particular briefing talking about it. Now, where does this story begin? Now, let's start off though with what the definition of a dirty bomb is, in case you don't know. And it's a, it's something that I first heard of way back in the immediate period after nine eleven, when there was all the talk in the British press was that Osama bin Laden, remember him, um, he was going to, or people linked to Al-Qaeda, that famous phrase, were going to set off a dirty bomb in a British city. Now, what does a dirty bomb mean? Now, what it is in very short terms is um, an explosive device... Uh, made of with explosive is regular um explosives of so TNT for instance which is strapped to or built up around a radio a piece of radioactive material which doesn't go off like a conventional nuclear bomb but what the explosion is meant to do is it's meant to spray this radioactive material over a wide area and you can build these out of like nuclear waste Uh, Anybody who has access to the uh, products or the byproducts of a nuclear power plant would be able, in theory, if they had the scientists available to advise on it, create one of these things. And of course, Ukraine has three functioning nuclear power plants. So now we've defined what it is, let's look at what this story is all about. So, last week, uh, towards the end of last week... uh, Our Minister of Defence, Ben Wallace, who is about the only figure in the British government that seems to hang around longer than five minutes, he made a dash over to Washington, D.C. so he could have a face-to-face meeting with the American Secretary of Defence and sales rep for Raytheon, Lloyd Austin. Now, this is rather odd because there's no reason why Ben Wallace can't pick up a phone and speak to Lloyd Austin or go on uh, a secure Skype call or something like that, or or some kind of internet call, video conference, and speak to Lloyd Austin. But Ben Wallace made a rather strange statement. He said he was going in person because his communications between him and Austin were potentially compromised, which is a rather odd statement to make, uh, coming from the British Minister of Defence. It's rather odd because if you assume that it's the Russians who have compromised them, Then why on earth would Ben Wallace admit that his conversations with his most important ally are essentially an open channel through which the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service is listening? seems a rather odd admission, even if you thought it was happening, why say it? It also would be rather odd if it was the Chinese, the Indians, or anybody else listening in that you would openly admit to this. So why did Ben Wallace run all the way to Washington DC last week? Maybe he has a mistress there. Maybe he just really likes taking pictures of himself by the Capitol building. Maybe or maybe for the further former, probably not for the latter. But even if, we're joking aside, we look at what possible reason could he need to go and say something to Lloyd Austin, which he absolutely needs to say face-to-face, and to come up with a reason for it, which, if anything, makes the Ministry of Defence in Britain look rather bad... Um, it's also about the same time that Wallace said when the Tory leadership battle was looking likely that he ruled himself out stating he wanted to stay on at the MOD. All interesting stuff. But it raises the rather interesting question of who had compromised Wallace's communications. Because if it was the Russians or the Chinese, then why the hell would the Ministry of Defence admit that the their two principal adversaries, as, as they identify them now, were... Apparently listening in to Wallace's calls. Bear in mind though, Wallace got pranked by two Russian hoaxers earlier in the year, so maybe Wallace himself isn't too good with communications. But either way, it's a strange admission. And then, of course, we get today uh, uh, General uh, Igor Kirilov of the uh, Russian Nuclear, Chemical and Biological Forces stating that the Kiev regime, and I'm quoting from him now, is preparing an attack with a dirty bomb or a low-yield nuclear device with the aim of accusing Moscow of carrying out this attack inside Ukraine. So it would be a false flag, but a rather deadly false flag attack. So this is what the Russians are stating that the Ukrainians are doing. And after the meeting uh, with Wallace last week, Austin called Sergei Shoigu, where they had some discussion of Ukraine. Then Shoigu called Austin uh, today... And also Wallace, and also Sébastien Le Corneau, the French uh, Minister of the Armed Forces, and also called Hulusi Akar, the Turkish Minister of Defence, all informing them of the same thing that Kirillov was talking about that Ukraine was preparing a dirty bomb which it would explode and try and blame it on the Russians. Now, the Russian Ministry of Defense later published a series of documents stating that this was more than capable of being done by the government of Ukraine because, of course, they have um, the free active nuclear power plants still on territory held by the Ukrainian government. They also have Chernobyl and um, in their territory. And this was something that was being prepared by Ukrainian scientists in collaboration with representatives of Britain which is, of course, why he called Wallace. And you can assume from the uh, extensive conversations that Shoigu was having, and also uh, General uh, Gerasimov, the chief of the Russian defense staff, called his equivalent uh, General Milley in Washington, and also the chief of the de- British defense staff, Admiral Sir Tony Rodakin. And... This series of calls by Shoigu and Gerasimov was apparently making these points rather forcefully to these, their counterparts in the uh, Western militaries, the most important militaries in NATO, which is the US obviously, and the French being the largest military, the British being the biggest contributor to the mess in Ukraine, uh, other than the Americans. And also the important strategic partner, as is developing now, the Turkish Ministry of Defence, who have also been providing uh, Ukraine with extensive uh, weaponry supplies, because, of course, uh, Erdogan has been playing both sides of the river on this one, as he always does. But this seems to indicate that the Russians have taken this threat seriously. This is not something that they've just pulled out of thin air or made up, because they've essentially gone public with this information and also provided what it seems to be a series of briefings based on the intelligence they have gathered from Ukraine to their equivalents in the MODs across Europe and Turkey. And this seems to suggest that they are pretty convinced that the Ukrainians are doing this, or at least are talking about doing it, and that they are receiving assistance from somebody. Now, if there's somebody as the Russians are saying, is a representative of Britain, and that is the phrasing that the Russian Ministry of Defence was using. That rather raises an interesting question, and it brings us back to who exactly is listening in to Ben Wallace's phone calls? Because if it isn't the Russians, um, and it would be rather remarkable, as I said, that Wallace would admit to that if that was the case, then I would think that there is every chance that this indicates that, Wallace believes that he is not in full command of the British Ministry of Defence. It wouldn't be the first time that this has happened, that a civilian, though he is a former army officer, Ben Wallace, but a civilian uh, minister of defence in Britain is not confident that he has full command over the people working supposedly below him. And what I mean by this is that there are a huge number of British operatives inside Ukraine, of MI6 and military intelligence and various plausible deniability mercenary operations that are being run by various characters, both state and non-state actors inside Ukraine. Recently at the Grey Zone, uh, Kit Klarenberg, who we've had on the show before and who I hope to get back on soon, published a piece on the attack on the uh, Kersh Bridge that was carried out by the Ukrainians but with the active assistance of British intelligence, uh, despite the fact that this has been something that the British government has denied. Um, What Kit reveals in that piece is that there are characters inside British intelligence who are determined that they are fighting a direct war with Russia even if the British government claims it is not. And also... There, I would point out that the control of the civilian government of Britain over particularly MI6 and other forms of special operations, particularly military intelligence, that control has always been rather shaky, as is the case whenever uh, some high-intensity situation is reached. It takes a very strong government to control some of these parts of the secret state, and we in Britain do not have a strong government and have not had one for quite some time. For most of this year, the British government has been dissolving in in internal crises and recently has gone through two prime ministers inside six weeks, a third one in Rishi Sunak just having taken office. And so given that the government on the one hand at the beginning of the year under Boris Johnson was saying uh, support Ukraine, do everything to support Ukraine. Liz Truss, moron of the year, even suggested that um, serving British soldiers should go over there undercover, though the British defence staff later had to deny that for her. There is every chance that these characters inside MA6 and the military intelligence agencies saw themselves as having an almost blank check, and with civilian oversight effectively having disappeared, and with only Wallace really remaining consistent in office over the course of the year, there is every chance that these guys thought that they could basically do whatever they wanted to. And that when the Ukrainians said, hey, do you think this is a good idea? Maybe, and I do emphasize this, maybe, some of these British intel characters looked at that and thought, well, why not go for it? Because these people are extremists. If you look at like the piece by Clarenberg, and if you look into what other things British intelligence has done over the years... Uh, not just in Ukraine or former territories of the Soviet Union. I mean, they were in Chechnya, um, encouraging the very worst elements of that um, Islamic insurgency there, but also their activities closer to home. In Ireland, for instance, we know that British intelligence services essentially ran the loyalist death squads for years, decades, and killed hundreds of people and targeted politicians for assassination targeted civil rights activists for assassination these are people who will take extreme measures and also people who operate outside of even right-wing governments control and so I find it conceivable that in a time when Britain has a very weak government with uh, minimal civilian oversight which is not capable of running its own affairs, never mind supervising the operations of the parts of the state that most politicians in Britain don't even want to know about, I think there's every chance that these guys started thinking they were running their own war and started thinking they could do anything they liked, especially after the uh, mad talk coming from like various people within the British and American governments that uh, Russia was going to use nukes in Ukraine. Always a lie. Always complete bullshit. It was basically meant as an opportunistic psyop by some various people inside the British government and the American government's media and spin operation. But I think that some people in Ukraine, backed up by some elements from British uh, agencies on the ground, took this as something of a green light. And I don't know how far they got towards preparing this. The Russians clearly have a very extensive intelligence-gathering operation inside Ukraine. So even if this was just a few conversations, they probably picked up on it and thought it was worth going straight to the top with these um, these revelations. I would also add that the conduct of Zelensky himself, though he may not have known about this, has played to this. Back in February of this year at the Munich Security Conference, before the Russian invasion started... Zelensky talked again of withdrawing from the, um, the Budapest agreement that was signed back in 1994, and he was saying it was a mistake that Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons. And what this is referring to is the nuclear arsenal that was left behind following the implosion of the Soviet Union. And there was a Soviet nuclear missile launching facilities that were in Ukraine, and that Ukraine inherited when the Soviet Union fell. But and I cannot emphasise this enough, Ukraine never had control over those systems. All of those systems, those missile systems, those ICBM systems, were all controlled from the Ministry of Defence in Moscow. And so what Ukraine gave up was not the ability to fire nuclear missiles. It was not an independent nuclear deterrent, as the British are fond of calling our you know five missiles we put on a pedalo. Um, it was a missile system which was on their territory over which they had no control. So they didn't give up anything, uh, only um, the fact that they had it on their territory and it was removed back into the Russian Federation. So Zelensky's talking out of his ass, as cokeheads often do, and also he has said, he's made this point again recently, saying that Ukraine should aim to get hold of nuclear weapons. Now, why does he keep talking like this? Why did he talk like this back in February of this year, before the invasion took place? Well, there's several reasons. First of all, a man's a cokehead. Cokeheads talk a lot of shit. More seriously, the mouthing off of Zelensky about this is part of the game that is being played back and forth between the Ukrainian government and the Western alliance. And what is being done there is the constant attempts by Zelensky and his ministers to finagle their way into getting an agreement to enter NATO by hook or by crook. And so his threat to obtain nuclear weapons, withdraw from the Budapest agreement back in February should be seen as him attempting to essentially game the U.S. in particular Bounce them into into agreeing to early entry into NATO, which the US was never going to do. As I've made clear on numerous programs beforehand, I don't think the plan was ever for the Ukrainians to join NATO. I think the, the plan was, from the American side, to cynically use Ukraine against Russia, whilst retaining enough of a distance for the Americans to be able to walk away if it all went to shit. And that does not include putting Ukraine in NATO. The idiots who are run, who running Kiev right now thought that they could game the Americans into essentially putting them in NATO, and that's why they started talking about nukes. It's why Zelensky brought it up again recently, because despite all the talk about offensives and the Russians are losing, etc., they are knowing now that they are going to be on the losing end of this very soon. And so, again, you saw the Ukrainian Minister of Defence say, oh, well, we're basically already in NATO, only to be slapped down by Stoltenberg the next day saying, no, you're not. You're not in. And then Zelensky said, oh, maybe we should uh, get nukes again. And all of this serves as sort of background details for somebody, doesn't have to be Zelensky or even anybody in the Ukrainian cabinet, but there's plenty of people in the Ukrainian state who would look at that and think well why not at least we can at least we can do something if they put that zelensky statements together with the uh, statements made by some in the um, the western governments that oh well if russia uses nuclear weapons it's a whole new game and put that together and think well why not do it because if that's the thing that will change the game if that's the thing that will get nato forces to enter the war directly then let's do it Let's bring them in. And there will be people who work within British intelligence who maybe are out in Ukraine right now or who are in London. And there will be people in in Washington, in maybe not in the military, but in the intelligence services maybe or certainly in the civilian structures who are, are insane enough and cold-blooded enough to think that this is a gamble worth taking. And Wallace, going back to Wallace, his run over to Washington, D.C. last week was probably prompted by the fact that he or people in the military that advise him know very well that there are people in the British intelligence services who are monitoring the calls of Wallace, probably monitoring the calls of the prime minister, whoever that happens to be at the time, and monitoring the calls of the foreign secretary especially over anything to do with Ukraine and that there are elements within the british uh, mi6 who are i wouldn't call them pro ukraine because what they're about what they were what they are trying to do is no good for ukrainians or ukraine itself it would leave an irradiated mess that would last for decades that would be on the par with uh, be on par with chernobyl in the north of ukraine but they are very much in favor of going into a full blown war with the russians these some of these people are mad enough to think that that's a good thing whereas the the game that is being played by the the civilian governments is to prolong the war and cost the russians in blood and treasure it's not to start a full blown war they're not they're cynical cruel brutal yes insane no some people inside this government of ours are or inside the deep state of britain are insane and are thinking that this is a good idea and because partly because We've had such piss-weak civilian oversight over these people. You've had a buffoon in Boris Johnson running things, a moron in Liz Truss running things. Ben Wallace is probably the only one, only constant, and he probably is the only one who has the slightest inkling of how insane these people are because the military hierarchy talked to him and probably tell him how crazy some of these people are and so that's why ben wallace went in person to washington i think because there's groups inside the british intelligence services who are sp- who are spying on him who are recording everything that he says and feeding it back to their friends in ukraine and he didn't want this picked up by them that's why he went in person and so that leads us to the next point which is that the fact that the russians then called up the chief of the defense staff here and presumably presented him with something. What the Russians are trying to do by presenting this to Milley and Radikin and the other um, senior military uh, men inside NATO is basically saying to them, look, you've got an intelligence operation inside Ukraine, which is essentially running wild and out of control, and you need to rein it in. Now, officially, of course, the Americans, the British and the French all denied... That this was the case Ah, oh, we don't believe that ukraine is going to use a dirty bomb uh this is all ridiculous we haven't though the white house's statements of uh, was that well we haven't seen the evidence they probably have they can't come out and say oh jesus christ we've backed a bunch of absolute lunatics um who are prepared to blow up a large portion of their own country and start world war three pull the plug guys they can't say that what they can do is get on the phone to Zelensky and the other clowns and around the Ukrainian cabinet and talk uh, and basically sell tell them whatever it is that you're thinking or not thinking of doing whatever you or whatever people associated with you are doing stop it right now or you get cut off basically um, or you, or there will be consequences now I don't know whether Zelensky's involved in this himself maybe maybe not maybe he gave the nod to it and then didn't want any knowledge of it but it would fit with the pattern of the ukrainians trying to essentially blackmail their own partners i'm using that word in heavy inverted commas into committing more forces to them it wouldn't surprise me if zelensky did know about it and he's now saying to austin and wallace and the others that well if you don't want us to do this give us even more stuff so it could be that the whole thing's a bargaining tactic by the um Zelensky or well, that's what he thinks it is but the Russians clearly took it seriously enough to make a put in a whole day's work of uh, frantic dear phone call diplomacy over it and so it reveals a very I think a very big danger which is of course the lack of civilian control over our intelligence and special forces inside Ukraine I think that's a given now that some of these people are running out of control, and Wallace or whoever is capable of pulling them back in, or the chief of the defense staff, should, if he's a sane man, uh, basically pull some of these people out, regardless of what they feel about their, how this war's going. If these people are scheming with the madder elements of the Ukrainian. Um, regime to do something like this or even just talking about doing something like this that's a serious escalation which nobody in their right mind would actually want even Ben Wallace who's made some very over-the-top statements about fighting the Russians before clearly it was too much even for him so this is a developing story one interesting other wrinkle on it is that the BBC the uh, state propaganda organization in Britain interestingly enough in their bulletins on this they were reporting the Russian claim um, on this, and only at the end of the report issuing the Ukrainian denial. Now, how these things are ordered on news reports does matter, because if you wanted to make it into something that was favoring the Ukrainian side, you would leave with the statement of Zelensky, who would said that only the Russians would detonate a nuclear bomb in Ukraine. That's what Zelensky's denial was, whereas the BBC's announcements actually talked about what the Russian MOD had said, and they actually quoted them accurately, then at the end of it says, Ukraine denies this. That's a difference in emphasis that you haven't seen before. And it says to me that this accusation that the Russians are making not only has validity to it, but worried enough people inside the hierarchy of the British government that they basically told the BBC to run the Russian accusation um, almost verbatim, because there's no way... given where we are, that that would normally be the case, that they would run the words of the Russian Ministry of Defense without running what the Ukrainians said first. So that's an interesting wrinkle on the story. So keep your eyes open for that. Evidently, there's some truly insane things going on inside Ukraine right now and some truly insane and dangerous characters floating around, both Ukrainian and British. So... Keep your eyes peeled. I'll be saying more on that tomorrow when we get more detail from uh, the Russian side of things. So that's the uh, the big story of today. This moves me on to a couple of other points of interest and things to keep an eye on. Things to keep an eye on at the moment include the developing situation inside Moldova. I've mentioned Moldova before. It is run by this heinous EU-US puppet named Maya Sandu, who's come straight out of the same casting call that produced Justin Trudeau, Jacinda Ardern, um, Sana Marin, and various other nightmarish officials who look like they've just walked straight out of an HR convention. But there's an escalating economic crisis in Moldova, as there is everywhere. There's an escalating fuel crisis in Moldova. The government of Sandu is blamed for this by large elements of the population. has been uh, widespread and growing demonstrations against the Sandhu government uh, led by the opposition party, a block of social democrats and communists um, that is led by a guy who's former president of Moldova, Igor Dodon, who was put under house arrest by the Sandu government and accused of treason, collaboration with the Russians, you know, usual crap. But this um, demonstration has been escalating, it has been building up steam. And the uh, uh, Sandhu government tried to uh, repress it the other day by unleashing riots police on it. They still kept gathering and now there's calls for the overthrow of Sandhu and the bringing to power of what the demonstrators are calling a people's government. That's a very interesting development there. Um, clearly the uh, mood in Moldova is turning decidedly against Sandhu and against the uh, pro-EU government that she runs. Whether this escalates to the point where that government collapses, it, time will tell, but certainly it looks like the weakest link in the in the European chain might break first, and that weak link being the Moldovan government. So keep an eye on the news from Chistanu if you can find it. The best place to find it is on ver- various uh, Russian telegram channels, because we're not getting a lot of coverage of the uh, events in Moldova on British television. Uh, You're barely getting enough coverage of uh, things that happen inside Britain itself, to be honest. So that's a big thing to keep an eye on. Uh, Other things from Europe include the uh, groveling stupidity of uh, Georgia Meloni, which is, as predicted by uh, our interviewee of a few weeks ago, uh, Thomas Farsi, uh georgia maloney first woman prime minister of italy and behaving exactly like mario draghi already in that she sent out a, a groveling tweet to zelensky a groveling tweet to uh, tony blinken uh going on about how they want to continue in partnership with the americans and support ukraine and all that kind of absolute drivel and proving yet again the these uh, tough guy or tough woman right-wingers who blabber on about the nation and faith and family values when it comes down to it they've got nothing absolutely nothing and she's not the first of course she's in an alliance with another absolute eunuch um Salvini who crumbled like a meringue when faced with the opposition of the EU and of course Berlusconi who at least got overthrown uh, by a, a stitch-up job back in 2011 and again this reveals the fact that these right wing parties uh, particularly of the um, pro american variety uh, that they're, they're not oppositional this is not these are not an oppositional force these are based on uh, reactionary petty bourgeois trends and they are incapable of facing off against uh, the eu why because of the class nature of them they are based on the same unstable uh, class dynamic as the petty bourgeois leftists are. Uh, They just tend towards the right rather than the left and neither of these class forces are capable of going up against the the Italian ruling class who are ultimately the ones who are in favour of continued EU and Euro membership and aren't capable certainly of standing up to the Germans or the French. They will crumble every single time just like Uh, the five-star movement did just like uh, Salvini did and this is going to keep happening and so I I posted this on Twitter and I did get one response from some clown in Italy who was defending this saying ah she's buying herself time so she can implement her pro-borders pro-family agenda well it's not much of a pro-family agenda uh, signora Meloni if you're staying in the euro and staying in the EU And Italian working class families, and a larger number of Italian middle class families as well, are going to get completely crushed by EU imposed austerity, by wage freezes, by cutbacks to uh, employment, by the increased bankruptcies of small businesses as fiscal tightening continues to bite ever harder down on Italian society. There's not much pro family about that, nor is there your amazing. Um, policy on um, being anti-immigration well you're not going to be able to be because the demands of um, Italian capital itself will be to find ever more hyper exploitable forms of labor and what more of a hyper exploitable form of labor can you find than some poor bastard who's just shipped up on a boat uh, from the coast of Africa so all of these things she's not buying herself time on anything she's just going to completely do the reverse ferret on it or whatever the Italian equivalent of that is And implement all the same policies as Draghi. But she's going to do it whilst waving the Italian flag and screaming about um, faith, family, and whatever. It's just a different form of mood music to uh, the five-star Liga coalition that existed in the past. It's the same pathetic nonsense, and uh, the government will collapse within 18 months or two years at the outside, then there'll be another election. And we covered all this in the interview with Thomas Farsi. He said it very, very well. There'll be another election with an even lower turnout, another weak, unstable, pathetic government that is committed over and above everything else to fulfilling Italy's international obligations will be elected, and then that'll collapse within a couple of years, and life for working-class and middle-class Italians will continue to get worse. So, Maloney, a complete blowout already. Which leads me to the next story, talking about complete flops and failures, Leads me to Liz Truss. Now, Liz Truss, you will be aware, has fallen. Uh, we hardly knew ye, and sadly, that was too much. Um, we got to know more than enough about Liz Truss and her old friend Kwasi Kwarteng, and their plans for the economy. But there was the reason why I'm discussing this again is because there was an interesting article posted in the Telegram chat group um, by uh, subscriber G Dubs, and. This article is from the Wall Street Journal by a guy called Joseph Sternberg, and it's an interesting article because it picks up on some of the things I was talking about when I did my political dissection of the career of Kwasi Kwarteng, and Joseph Sternberg, in this article, he's clearly a Wall Street opinion writer, free market guy, but he does say something which is very, very true, and he argued that the fate of trust and Kwarteng was down to their policies potentially threatening uh, the... Badly exposed pension funds that have invested heavily in debt packages. But the wider point that Sternberg makes in the article is that the reason why Trust and Quartang were disposed of is not just because of the exposure of the pension schemes, but that the entire British economy is so heavily exposed to gigantic amounts of debt that anything that endangered that or, or put that at risk was going to be um, reacted to incredibly negatively by the financial markets. And Sternberg's argument is that essentially the danger of Trussonomics or Quartagnomics or whatever you want to call it wasn't that it was going to not produce growth. was that they're combining it with uh, fiscal tightening uh, in the form of uh, the wanting the Bank of England to raise interest rates quicker was what the real threat was. And uh, he's largely right about this in that the the tax cuts that Teng and Truss wanted to do weren't weren't out of the blue. Truss had talked about them in her election campaign, and that when Teng announced them, it shouldn't have been a surprise as they all knew that he was going to do this, and that the impact of them wasn't so huge as to overturn the whole system. What the threat was was that they want that Kwarteng wanted. ...increased um, interest rate rises um, in order to be part of stimulating growth again as he understood it. And as I've covered in in my obituary of Kwarteng's career, I don't think his solutions were particularly good. But the fact that the markets and their political representatives in the form of the Bank of England governor... ...reacted so negatively does, as Sternberg argues in this uh, piece here, does state a rather worrying truth for British capitalism that they were more interested in defending these gigantic debt piles, these gigantic amounts of debt products that are bought into, not just by the pension funds, but a lot of other financial institutions as well. They're more interested in defending that than they are actually finding a way to make the economy grow again, which points to a rather troubling factor about Rishi Sunak's uh, forthcoming premiership, which is that his economic policies will be all based upon making sure these gigantic debt mountains don't get disturbed. And so, that basically, as Sternberg argues in the Wall Street Journal piece, points to a policy of essentially nothing. Points to essentially that Sunak and Starmer to follow him, don't forget him, will, guided by the experts in the Treasury, look to just stabilize the debt and the economy will continue to contract. But as long as the uh, the British government's ability to pay its debts remain cre- remains credible, as long as the debt packages that all these financial institutions have brought into remain credible and that there is a credible belief in the investors that, and the bondholders that, that payments are going to be made on these things, then everything will be regarded as fine. Meanwhile, the government will continue to cut budgets, restrict wages, attack workers, and... In all, all in order to maintain this, but at the same time have no strategy for growing the economy whatsoever. And in actual fact, the pressure will be for um, interest rates to not go up any higher. In order that the, um, as interest rates go higher, more of these uh, debts become unpayable and unstable, and then all these bubbles start to go pop. But And Sternberg concludes that that's rather grim news, and he's right. And it's not just for us in Britain, it's for the United States as well. Even though the United States' economy is more productive than Britain's, it's still got these gigantic toxic debts hanging around it, not just in the form of government debt, but huge amounts of corporate debt and private debt. And uh, if the fear is that any further fiscal tightening go, uh, is, runs the, runs the risk of blowing this whole thing up, then they'll reverse and just go back to like, Japan style perma low interest rates, which essentially means it's going to be a zombie economy. That the British capitalist economy is going to be a shuffling, barely sentient corpse. And Sternberg says that's worrying, and he's right. Of course, being a capitalist, he doesn't go into why this is the case, and the case of Britain is as the oldest capitalist economy we were the first down the rabbit hole of financialization and again as I've mentioned many times before but you should always go back and read it uh, read the section of imperialism the highest stage of capitalism by Lenin when he talks about the British economy starting to deindustrialize as early as the late 19th century and for the reasons that are twofold first of all there is of course uh, the rate of profit falling rate of profit on industry falling and being outstripped by the profit that can be made via just the movement of capital or the exploitation of labor in other areas in the case of the 19th century this was the areas of the empire but as with time goes on there is as Marx observed in Capital Volume 2 the tendency to go from a circuit of money commodity money to just money to money and what I mean by that is there is and this was an observation developed by Engels, this tendency within capitalism, which has been there from the very beginning, to try and get rid of the commodity production process because it just gets in the way and costs too much money. So if you can just move from a situation where you're having to pay for production, if you can just move from money to money and get rid of that nasty business of production in the middle, then the capitalist is going to try and do that. And we, as the oldest capitalist country, led the way on that. And this really took off from the late, well, the mid 60s onwards to the point where now everything was financialized and the world system that was existing before 2008, in which they tried to put back together again and which they're frantically trying to cling on to now, was based on the, the globalization model as designed in Washington, according to the interests of the American ruling class, but with the British role within that as seen by. British uh, bourgeois themselves and successive British governments expressed by people like Blair and Brown was that in this globalised model led by the Americans, the British ruling class would provide the, um, the financial services to this model. And this was what was going to make the City of London the envy of the world, the fact that it could move your money However, in however crooked means you attained it, more efficiently than anywhere else, that we could provide better financial services than anywhere else, and that all money thus would want to come here. And this was going to be what fueled British growth. And Gordon Brown was very open about this. I remember reading his speeches before the crash of 2008, stating that this was the model that Britain was going to follow. This was going to be. The globalized economy, which was going to be Britain's speciality, manufacturing was gone, dead, finished with, uh, other than some isolated areas, that this services was the way to go, and it has all come crashing down, and it was sustained for the last 14 years by ever-increasing amounts of debt. and now they're terrified, looking over staring over the edge of the abyss or into the abyss, thinking what the hell are they going to do? Now, the chances of Rishi Sunak changing course are close to zero. What he's going to do is just try and get through the next two years, stabilise the ship and go off and spend more time with his money. And that is his job. His job is to spend two years stabilising things, making sure that the markets have faith in the British government's ability to pay its bills and making sure that British debt and the debt that is traded on British markets is credible. And that is Rishi Sunak's job. And that is a job that he will embrace, being a former Goldman Sachs guy. And so that is where we are. And so that article by Joseph Sternberg is very interesting because it's a pro-capitalist writer suddenly realizing that everybody's in a deep hole. And the American economy is not that in that much better a shape. Though they do have certain advantages over us for now, that those are in- becoming increasingly endangered as time goes on. couple more things from the economic side of things. First of all, the Eurozone. Is moving ever deeper into a recession. Industrial output has gone into a steep decline across Germany, um, France, and Italy. With industries uh, that are particularly energy intensive, no surprise here, such as chemicals and plastics and metalworking, hitting a downturn faster than anywhere else. So, Eurozone recession is very definitely on the cards and coming at us very fast indeed. Other Supplementary point to that, there's now a debate raging in the EU over what to do about Russian aluminium. The Americans want sanctions on it, or more sanctions on it. And Russia, of course, produces 6% of the world's aluminium supply. According to an article on Euronews today, the uh, trade federations, particularly in Germany and Italy, have written to the European Commission urging them to not put any more sanctions on Russian aluminium. And they're pointing out that those entities and uh, countries that are pushing for more sanctions on it are usually those like the American Alcoa, um, which have either uh, alternate supply lines or don't uh, use um, imported aluminium at all. And the companies in Germany and Italy are pointing out that, well, if you get rid of this low-cost, high-quality Russian aluminium that we're using, basically we're going to go bust, which is going to be a severe problem for uh, Olaf Schultz and uh, Giorgio Maloney, and the question is, are they prepared to duck out of these sanctions to help preserve their industries? Of course, this again points back to significant problems with the European industry in that they became dependent upon much more cheaply produced uh, Russian aluminium rather than trying to develop it in their, in their own countries again, and that this has again therefore left them very exposed. So, again, that's a story to keep an eye on developing. Are they going to find another pit of the sanctions which they exempt themselves from? Or is this going to be another case of the Americans trying to grab a market and hiding behind the sanctions in order to make it so? Interesting developments to keep an eye on, nonetheless. So, that brings me to the end of today's update. Rather a lot to say today. Um, More on the dirty bomb story tomorrow, I have no doubt. And more on the briefings from the front line. But until then... Thank you for listening, and I'll be back with you again tomorrow.